0: an idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government.
1: The Honor Ron Paul podcast starts now. Welcome to the Honor Ron Paul podcast. This is episode 33, uh, 33 and you'll find this at honorronpaul.com/ep33. With me today is John Burla. Am I saying that correctly? Yes.
0: You said it right on the first try.
1: All right. Excellent.
0: Birds, called and more like the
1: law. <laughs> uh, and John, I'm just meeting for the first time. He has an excellent book that's out right now called George Washington Entrepreneur. And I uh, got a little tagline of how our founding father's private business pursuits changed America and the world. And I think it's especially timely because we see other uh, political candidates who have, generated a lot of business not for business sake but just business surrounding the office of president or vice president uh, which is a nice little um, uh, counter example to how hard the founding fathers had to work um, because it was not lucrative to be in politics it was a, a burden and a responsibility and it wasn't uh you couldn't just get your kids lucrative jobs
0: (laughs) right right he was an independent uh half farmer and uh independent you know businesses there like the blacksmith shop the flour melon later the whiskey distillery and when he left mount vernon for when george washington left mount vernon for both the war and to a lesser extent his presidency i mean he had people working for him and he wrote long letters as far as instructions as far as even things like how high to the fence would be, but the place was still, you know, in in disrepair every time he returned there. So it did cost him to be in uh, public life, but he felt, you know, the long-term self-interest of being a free nation served it. It was worth it.
1: Uh, John, you and I have a bit of uh, similar background. I trained in, I, I went to school in Missouri as well. I went to Truman State, which was then called Northeast Missouri State, and you were down there in Columbia. And I had to uh, drive straight down the sixty-three to get to anything interesting from Kirksville, so I, I know uh, the um, University of Missouri campus a bit. Yes,
0: it's it's a fu- it's a fun campus, and you've got. Jefferson's tombstone there as it's a real tombstone as it was the first, uh, uh, school public university in Louisiana territory. I heard UVA wants it back, but now these days uh, I don't know if they, I don't know what, whether it's status is, it, is secure or not there.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I didn't even know that. I was, yes. I was not nearly as politically, uh, interested or savvy uh, as I am now. And it was, um, Ron Paul's campaign in 2007 and 2008 that kind of shook me from my uh, political apathy um, and uh, kind of uh, brought me into uh, libertarianism and free market ideas. Um, but your journey started much earlier in that you have uh, both degrees in journalism and economics. Tell me a, a little bit of, about that, because it seems like a, an unusual coupling, but it's a very worthwhile coupling.
0: Well, I figured, you know, um, history was, and I love history. I wrote this book about George Washington. It's something I could read about. But economics, you had to be in there doing the math. Although I must say, if I knew how much math you had to do, I may not have taken it. But I did some, that started my career in business journalism. I was Washington correspondent for Investor's Business Daily and profiled a lot of, you know, Businessmen, you know how they got started—from John Johnson of Ebony Magazine to, uh, um, you know, uh, John Kelly of Alaska Airlines, uh, um, Henry and Richard Block. I got to interview them as well as successful entertainers and athletes. I interviewed the late Ray Charles and, uh, and of course, economists like like Milton Friedman, James Buchanan. before they passed, I got to talk to all, all of them, so I got to got to know a lot of uh, historical figures as well as you know reading about them, like with George Washington. So that's what you know. One of the things the job really has really given me. So I've just I've worked in your know, business type of journalism as well as you know how polit- how politics and how regulations, and other things you know, can affect or frustrate. Uh, business or the entrepreneur, particularly startup entrepreneurs, uh, you know, starting out, which is, I found, you know, Washington, you know, basically was a lot of new ventures. So, uh, you know, before uh, it was a whole nother life and, you know, he sort of went into politics, you know, for the long-term self-interest of securing his freedom there.
1: Yeah. That's uh, so this in, in some ways similar to some of the writings you've done, but taking the idea that, um, you know, looking at George Washington uh, throughout his economic life, similar to uh, the interviews you've done to other people for uh, for the inv- investors business daily.
0: I did this as sort of like a business profile. And I've written pieces before, like on, uh, on Forbes, National Review, um, uh, Reason and other places uh, for George Washington's birthday. And a friend of mine who became my agent said, well, why don't you make a book on this? So I did, and there was just so much more. And uh, there's so much, you know, so many of his papers are going online, thanks to Mount Vernon and the University of Virginia project, you know, because if they, there aren't, unlike with John and Abigail Adams, there aren't that many, there are only like three love letters between George and Martha. So because that was, she burned them as was the custom then, Martha did when George passed. But then there are just tons of business correspondence of things he ordered and, You can find out so much that they still haven't put it all online, they hope to finish it this decade, and uh, you can find out so many things from business correspondence, like his struggles with growing tobacco and why he switched to wheat, to the things like the the books he read, and there's a lot of info about the books he read. We knew, for instance, that, well, he read Locke on, on, you know, on natural rights, and he read Adam Smith, The Wealth wealth of Nations. Uh, the, which was the first, you know, the book that you know sort of introduced uh, capitalism as opposed to mercantilism and other forms of cronyism.
1: Yeah, and he wasn't afraid to get down and dirty as well. Uh, the uh, in the green thumb chapter, he's talking about, you know, what types of dung to mix into the compost pile to get the just the best crops and so he was, Uh so definitely... there's a
0: whole dung repository he built of to, to keep to keep the manure for. A, that that was a particular fascination that they rebuilt at Mount Vernon. <laughs>
1: That's interesting. Uh, so he was uh, he was destined for politics because he was so good at uh, pitching the poop.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, he was interested in in um, uh, legit uh, le- le- legitimate. And le- I, I think there's actually truth to legitimate uh, manure, not like the which actually can smell better than the manure than the kind of metaphorical manure you get in politics.
1: <laughs> um, so you were interested in free market economics you um, know, kind of well before Ron Paul came through. Um, tell me a little bit about being in the journalistic world uh, as uh, from from kind of a um, almost insider or journalistic perspective, as you see kind of Ron Paul and the impact that he has coming into the uh, uh, election season.
0: Well, I must say that I came in. I mean, Ron Paul had always been a part of, you know, my political awakening because like when I was 17, that's when he ran as libertarian for president. And I knew about that. I followed politics. Oh wow. And that's one of the things that introduced me to libertarianism. So, you know, I had, you know, I'm one of those who Ron Paul may have, may have helped, uh, you know, become, I also read Ayn Rand and other things, but certainly I was reading what Ron Paul had said so. It was earlier for me than it was for you, maybe by about uh, 20 years even. But Ron Paul helped me along, so uh, I honor Ron Paul too, just like you do on your on your show, on your podcast.
1: Yeah, it's excellent because we're uh, about the same age. Um, so, uh, you know, when I think about when I'm reading all these people, uh, you know, Milton Friedman and Rothbard and and all these people, you know, uh, it just came into kind of awareness of them right about when they died. <laughs> so, you know, uh, even Mises um, died in 90-something. I, I can't remember. Right. Mises
0: died in 1973. So, oh. yeah, I, 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 never, I, right, I well, was two years old then, so I never yeah. got it. But. Like Hayek died in the nineties. I never that's, got to meet him, but uh, I got to meet Milton Friedman. I got well, I got to interview Milton Friedman. I got to interview James Buchanan, the father of public choice economics, and who won the no, who was also a Nobel laureate and put mm-hmm. really put George Mason on the map. And then there's been another, um, you know, it was in this, you know, this school in in Northern Virginia nobody had heard of, and then all of a sudden James Buchanan wins the Nobel Prize, and then Vernon Smith later on wins the Nobel Prize. Like 20 years later in, in, in economics, but Buchanan, I mean, founded, you know, the pu- public choice that just basically a whole new way that, you know, you follow, you know, politicians are in their self-interest, uh, interest too. And that, that explains so much that they aren't philosopher kings. Why the bias, for instance, the FDA is like toward what we call at the competitive enterprise Institute, org deadly over caution where, they will, you know, it has the same public health consequences to delay an and effective and safe drug as it does to approve a risky drug, but they're much more on the side of delaying because no one knows about it, but everyone will know if they approve a risky drug, but the public health consequence still means people die needlessly, but right. this is where their incentives are, so a lot of it has, and, uh, and rent-seeking other things that all started with, with uh, with Buchanan, although I'm finding that the concepts and the, the things that Washington recognized that cer- certainly existed before then. and uh, Buchanan just put a just put a name on it. So, uh, uh, but I, um,
1: and you certainly see that the um, same issue with particularly the governors um, completely neglecting all the harm and deaths that they're causing by locking down there. Uh, economy and scaring everybody away from you know getting appropriate treatments and uh, these restrictions on uh, the hospitals uh, so they completely ignore those because those are kind of the unseen as you know Bastiat was talking Robert about Frederick Bastiat yeah. yes what's so, seen unseen. You know, what's seen is this these COVID counts that everybody is just harping right. on every day. Oh the cases are going up, the cases are going up. Well you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people are dying in the developing world um, right. because of malnutrition and lack of tuberculosis. Well, treatment I just in a story
0: about what was the unseen effect of, of a part of Dodd-Frank, which was rammed through, you know, the Democratic Congress in 2010 and signed by President Obama, ostensibly with bank reform, but they put in a provision that was sort of like a backdoor tariff that said you have to have to use, uh, disclose if you use like tin or tungsten or gold or, that was mined may have been mined in the Congo and may have been controlled by warlords. And what happened is that was so difficult to do for a company that you know that you know the manufacturers don't mind that and they don't always know if the material may have been reused or made remote uh, remote amounts of it. So so they just said you know they're just avoiding the Congo and the region you know in Africa from it. First you know that that had the effect of you know like. uh, like uh, like tariffs can of of of, of impoverishing that region, uh, but now it's, it's we 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 don't have access. The U.S. doesn't have access to materials we need for to build things like ventilators and to produce vaccines. Like tantalum is a tantalum capacitor is a prime component of a of a ventilator. So I just had a Wall Street Journal piece about that about how that provision of Dodd Frank is really slowing the, the COVID recovery.
1: Wow, that's amazing.
0: May result in shortages and price spikes uh, for that.
1: Yeah, and then think about the the poor people in the Congo who are running, aren't you know, are trying to run a legitimate mining business (laughs) and trying to avoid the warlords. I don't know if you can or not. That's
0: the thing; hurt legitimate mining as well. People just avoided the Congo.
1: And I've heard some arguments similar to that in regards to like um, you know the fair trade certified uh, coffee beans and whatnot you know, it, it shifts away from these small farms into the bigger kind of corporate entities that exist in areas. Um, I shouldn't speak on that because I haven't.
0: So the, well, always the big business can afford with all regulation compliance more. And that's, uh, and that's, and that's how, and, and. but, you know, if, if it's voluntary, the fair trade, I mean, that, you know, at least better when the government coerces it. It means, you know, nobody has a choice or, or except the only one who does is, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the, the command economy of, of China isn't bound by Dodd-Frank. So they're able to get all the tin and tantalum for their medical supplies and things that the U.S. isn't going to. And we talk about, you know, whether government should be involved in the, in the supply chain. But I think as, you know, and I'm not for like protectionist measures, but as libertarians, I think we could agree with, you know, and hopefully nationalists will agree with us that, you know, you could, if you, if there's a regulation for preventing like a domestic, a medical supply chain, you get, you get rid of it. And Washington faced, you know, Washington faced his own, in addition to the taxes that Washington and the entrepreneurs of his day, the frustrating of British regulation, as I explained in George Washington Entrepreneur, available on Amazon and in other great places you buy books, George Washington Entrepreneur, that the British just really wanted the you in their mercantilist system, the U.S. to be like an agricultural backwater, you know, produce the crops for them, but not make anything even though we iron was being mined here and the m- mined iron was shipped to uh, to to Britain, they made it illegal to uh, and this wasn't always enforced consistently to make even things like like nails or horseshoes. And so Washington was starting a blacksmith shop, and so were others. And he just wondered if they can lift you all these taxes? Could they? Could they uh, actually confiscate? And, and Washington uses the term with George Mason my manufactories so the whole thing about regulation without representation which my group cei is still fighting was as much as issue as, as taxation without representation for many of the founding fathers
1: yeah and it's always interesting looking at what the founding fathers were fighting against um and the impositions of england versus what the current government is imposing on us i mean what the Stamp Act was half a cent or something like that. And, you know, uh, you know, fairly straightforward regulations, although onerous in regards to uh, manufacturing of iron back then uh, and tea and and things like that. But now we have tens of thousands of pages of regulations and, you know, half of my income goes to the government in some form or another. And it is just interesting that um you know uh people chafed at a foreign entity controlling them but now since it's us we just you know quote unquote us through democracy we just accept it
0: well as i say in the book and as cei says we have now we one of the problems the problem then was taxation without representation and now we've Sort of almost solve that problem. We have taxation; it's too high. But if the if the if the Congress legislates legislates like a thirty five percent tax rate, the IRS, you know, usually can't do it at forty percent. It's what Congress says. But with regulation, the regulate these unelected bureaucrats, just like in Washington's day, will make up the law. They'll say, "Okay, Congress says you can't. You can't. You know." Uh, uh, Put dirt into the stream. Well, what we're going to call this mud puddle? You know, since it's a, since it's sort of since it's water that it's that it's a that it's a stream. Or the SEC, they create the SEC to regulate securities like stocks and bonds, and then the SEC now is saying, well, like a, a, a cryptocurrency as a security when Congress never gave it the authority. So we never we never elected these, and and so that's the problem with with the growth of the administrative state, which was actually something about. Washington warned about, in addition to having two interventionist foreign policy in his farewell address, and it's something he experienced, you know, with what they call the swarms of officers in the Declaration of Independence with Britain, and you know, his because he was sort of Washington was making factories as far as with with the flour mills, with blacksmith shop, and was just seeing uh, um, uh, was um, seeing, you know, was was afraid that they could that you know all he had built could be confiscated from him. or or it could be shut down and they would have to buy it from Britain, even though, you know, they have the iron and can make it right there.
1: Yeah. Uh, It's, it's always very difficult to kind of uh, scrape together an existence, particularly 200 years ago. And it it is always interesting how uh, versatile people were back in the day, Um, you know, trying to, branch out and we kind of see that how hard times make people much more versatile as people are looking for secondary income streams and and doing a whole variety of of different things to uh, make ends meet it's uh, no longer sufficient just to have one particular uh, job at the same place for 50 years and then you retire and uh, and that's that. Uh, I mean,
0: Washington was was the entrepreneur for a gig could be called like for an entrepreneur in what was then the gig economy. I mean, he didn't inherit a whole lot, not compared to other founding fathers like uh, like 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 Jefferson, like Jefferson and Adams. He could never; his family couldn't afford going to school. His father died when going to college, his father, so he never went to college. His father died when he was eleven, and since he had two older brothers, he really didn't inherit much. Mount Vernon, you know, was sort of an accident that became his, but Washington started out in what was the gig economy back then as a, as a land surveyor when he was 16 mm-hmm. and just developed the best reputation doing over 200 surveys. And he started, you know, speculating in real estate while well, he was a land surveyor, he would see some of this undeveloped land in Western Virginia, some of which is West Virginia now, and then go ahead and, and, and buy it, and sometimes would get paid in land. And he still kept that skill as far, as far as surveying. So he was he was on his he was on his way, and then he would rent out that land to uh, tenant farmers, and uh, until you know eventually, well, he got some more holdings when he married Martha, who was a, who was a, who was a wealthy widow, and I think you know until they, they 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 did they did, and then she was an able business partner too, and then. He was able to inherit some of Mount Vernon when his brother, older brother, died, and and then his brother's wife, and and, and you know tragically their little girl died, and he was able to you know kind of in, 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 you know inherit Mount Vernon from there. But even the Mount Vernon he got in uh, in 1759 isn't the Mount Vernon we see today, which he you know added on and built you know uh, what they call a the mansion house and and uh, and, uh, and you know Italian verandas things like things like that of everything and diversified the crops he he saw the tobacco was ruining the soil and everybody all the Virginia gentlemen were growing tobacco but he said this isn't working so he quit growing tobacco and started growing weed and diversifying the crops into other things including hemp and then he bought the flour mill for the weed
1: yeah and then just went on from there including uh that with the, what what was it the largest distillery in the new world or
0: it was. It was. Yes. When uh, that was after he was president of the year, seventeen ninety-seven. He took advice from his Scottish, um, uh, um, you know, farm manager and his friend, who had been a, you know, who was a, a, an Irish merchant who had been a general under him the war. He said, "Do you think making whiskey would be a good idea?" And of course, the Irish uh, knew <laughs> knew whiskey, and he said, and he said, "Yes." Yeah. So that's what John, so John Fitzgerald advised him to do that. But that thing, Washington would listen to people. He would. He would write, you know, when he didn't understand, like he wrote, you know, to a Catholic couple in Maryland about how to build a, a greenhouse. So and he was just, you know, friendly with people from all walks of life. Plus, he read. I mean, he 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 educated himself, even though he did go to college. He read Adam Smith and Locke, but also if he wanted to know about horsemanship and Jefferson said that, that he was, you know, the greatest horseman there, that Washington was the greatest horseman there was. Washington read books about how to do jumps and, and how to care for sick horses. That's what we can see. That's why it's so valuable to have all like the business receipts, the invoices. We see the books he was buying and when he was buying them and when he was reading them and what else he was doing. And uh, um, Kevin Hayes, uh, who, was, who was who did a, who did a Washington Alive and Books, you know, pieced a lot of this together about what Washington was reading uh, when, but it's fascinating to look at it because he was really a well-read self-educated man and that helped him you know, become a great entrepreneur and also motivated him to fight for liberty.
1: And it's a great example of working hard at what you do and you never know when certain skills that you pick up are going to come into play later. Uh, As a surveyor and a lover of maps, he used that to his advantage as general um, and his horsemanship skills, I'm sure, came into play as a general as well. Um, and then leading him to the presidency and so um, you know whatever even if you are starting off and you're a young person and starting off in some job that you don't particularly think is going to go anywhere you don't particularly want to do it you know you never know when those skills uh, that you're learning are going to pay off uh, the, the wider breadth of knowledge that you have uh, the more ways that you can use it in the future I think he's an excellent example of of all that hard work then paying off as he could keep diversifying and building his little, um, what did you call it in the book? An industrial village. Yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, so many businesses, like he was the first, he's also considered in addition to the father of our country, the father of the American mule because he was the first to crossbreed mules and sell them. in the, in the new world to crossbreed, you know horses that the male the male donkey and the female uh a jackass and a mare and and sell and make mules and sell mules and mules you know they they did the heavy work on the farm before there were tractors really and mm. and uh and then they also did things like you know build help building canals and uh and washington was he always you know he would invent new plows but he also helped some of the early american inventors get get patents like the one gentleman in, in Virginia, James Ramsey, he helped him get a patent for what turned about to, out to be the first working steamboat, 20 years before Robert Fulton successfully commercialized it. And Washington, he had a, he had a curious, open mind. Like, the, this is the 1780s, where when we had the first, you know, man flight with a with a balloon in France, and he... Washington welcomed French balloonists, and he said in a letter to someone, you know, someday we might be flying through the air to go to Paris. He could envision long-distance air travel for all the things, and yet he's not considered as you know, being as imaginative as Franklin and Jefferson, yet in many ways he was.
1: Uh, You can't talk about a founding father these days uh, without somebody squawking about the situation in the early years, and this was... Hundred years before the Civil War. Um, but even still, he was very concerned with the health and well being of his slaves that he had inherited. And um, uh, so, in his will, it was a very difficult situation because since he, uh, you're going to have to refresh me on this, but since he had inherited um, the slaves, they were legally bound to his heirs uh, and attached to the property is that how that worked well and so- here's the
0: thing they, they weren't just his slaves he, right. he freed all of his own slaves that he legally could and the only founding father who had had slaves to do so but martha's slaves were actually in dower um uh, for what, what they were what they were called like a, a, a dowry uh, you know like like you have a dowry when you marry from her first husband sort of held in trust for her for her, her, her children had, had had passed before her for her grandchildren. So neither George nor Martha could legally free those slaves. And that and that was an issue because you know some of them you know had had you know had married each other and everything. So so they let you know even when they were freed, some of them still wanted to stay there and be with their their spouses, their children and, and George and Martha I mean let them Come there? Were they even, you know, George? Even in his will, provided like um, uh, old age relief for some of the slaves, as well as education and education and training. So, um, which which education and
1: training was uh, significantly taboo um, uh, for you to do again for your slaves? So. That
0: is, that's, well, well, that sort of came later, the laws against education. That was like the early 1800s. Okay. But yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't widely practiced, and it wasn't the fact that, you know, it was, it was, it was a revolutionary thought that, you know, slaves, you know, were capable that, or, that, or that African-Americans were capable of more than what they were doing. But Washington saw this, you know, both from free blacks during the war and when he saw, say, some of the enslaved people, working at the distillery, he wrote to Arthur Young saying, you know, this was his quote, blacks are capable of much labor and they were held back, you know, from slavery, by slavery, the brutality and also its lack of incentive. So he was able to see, I mean, more so than Jefferson that, you know, you could, you could, we may not have ever believed in full equality, but that you could have slaves, you know, advance, you know, hold positions in a free society. And he, and he he worked toward that even, you know, before he, freed them, he would, you know, he I don't think he said he would never break up a slave family, and, and he rarely did, you know, since the 18, since the 1770s, and, you know, and, and he was, and he also, I mean, I, I found in the book with the Fairfax Resolves in 1774, a couple years in which was in many ways the precursor from the Declaration of Independence. This is something Washington made, uh, put together with Mace, George Mason, and then you had the leaders of Fairfax County sign it that they condemned, they called for England to halt the slave trade and condemn the slave trade as as cruel and in, inhumane. So Washington was on record condemning at least the slave trade since 1774, and he worked. You know, some you could argue whether he worked as, as much to you know to end it, but he was certainly better than his era. Unlike you know when you people like you know, I mean, I think that's sort of the test: were you better than your era? Whereas somebody like Woodrow Wilson was worse than his era when right. he resegregated the, uh, the the federal government and, uh, you know, showed them with a the pro-Klan movie, Birth of a Nation, in the White House. Yeah, So Washington has to be given credit. And, and, of course, slavery is not a uniquely American institution. It was something practiced the world over until basically the West, you know, abolished it. And before 1619 in Jamestown, the, the English uh, slaves arrived there. I mean... Um, Spain and Portugal had about five hundred thousand
1: slaves in the New World. So, right, and uh, slave trade in South America continued for much longer than yes. it did in North America. So there's a lot of misconceptions yes. um, about that, and it, it is, yeah, you know, I think people really miss out on just kind of the beautiful aspect of history and humanity. How there was slavery. Essentially, forever, ever since there was uh, large cities and somebody could dominate someone else physically.
0: Uh, the African American scholar Henry lewis Gates said slavery is as old as civilization itself.
1: Right, and that continued and continued and continued. Then England felt that it was immoral and not Christian, and they put significant. Um, uh, you know, a significant amount of resources towards ending the slave trade and started a cascade of ending slavery around the world. Uh, and it's just a, a dramatic change and it's um, kind of sad how these uh, the, the founding generation aren't really judged based on their peers and their time. They're kind of based on Uh, retrospectively and uh, people giving George Washington a hard time. Um, But, you know, he spent a significant amount of his money uh, caring for um, the older African Americans. And, you know, what, uh, what could he have done? I mean, there was a lot of issues with people freeing slaves and then they would be kidnapped and taken South and said, Oh, well, You know, this is, uh, no, no, this is my slave. You know, it's just (laughs) that a free black was always, you know, uh, at that risk of uh, being kidnapped. I mean, that's the whole point of that 12 Years a Slave movie. So, uh, you know, it was protective to keep them under, quote unquote, bondage. Um, until he no longer could do that because he died so i think it's honorable
0: well uh, there were i mean you could argue he could have done, he could have done more but he did quite a bit more than more than all of the other founding fathers i would say given that he had slaves and he was the only one to free all his slaves plus to provide for their welfare when they were free and a lot of it he was able to do that because he had managed his his Finances so well, Jefferson, you know, could only free like the, you know, the couple of the Hemings family and others because, and, and I mean, Jefferson was a was also, a, I mean, a great, um, you know, a, a great founding father, but he he was he was he was in he was in debt when he uh when he died, whereas Washington had really had really managed his finances well, and people have different skills, and I don't want to put the founding fathers against the other, but this is just part of what makes Washington so amazing. Yeah.
1: And I think that's a, a wonderful way to close off today. I promised to keep it for 30 minutes, but I really appreciate it. And a link to the page um, to uh, the book. Uh, would you like me to do the Amazon link?
0: Yes, please, please. And it's available everywhere where books are sold. Uh, George Washington Entrepreneur, uh, published by St. Martin's, uh, available where uh, by John B E R L A U, available where books are sold
1: that's excellent and this was uh, Honor and Ron Paul episode 33 and thank you much for your time John
0: thank you so much Howard